Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of this glorious kingdom forever and ever. Bashem Yeshua Moshenu, in the name of Yeshua our Messiah. Amen. I'd like to ask, I'm going to pick on my son-in-law. I don't get to do that very often. But since he's here, I'm going to ask him if he'd ask a blessing over the uh, sermon today. Dear God, please uh, bless the sermon. Uh, uh, give guidance to Chris and allow what he teaches us be totally and fully from you. Uh, and help us learn and grow in our relationship with you. Amen. 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 This is a verse we quote virtually every Saturday. So uh, say it with me. Psalm 119. 18 let this be our prayer open my eyes that i might behold wondrous things out of your torah ready open my eyes that i might behold wondrous things out of thy torah the word torah does mean law but more importantly it means instructions so open my eyes that i might behold wondrous things from your instructions and uh king david he was head over heels over god's torah over god's law over god's instructions he wrote the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. It's like over a hundred and some verses. And it's all talking about the different aspects of God's law. And every year we go through the five books of Moses, go through the law, which is called the Torah portions. So the Torah portion for this week is called Tetzaveh, which means you are to order. And it's taken from Exodus chapter 27, verse 20, all the way to chapter 30, verse 10. But this year we've been using the Brit Chedeshah, the New Testament, as a springboard uh, for our discussion on the Torah portion for this week, relating the two together, showing that both volumes of the Word of God are inextricably connected. They're one, and they shouldn't be separated. What is in Exodus 1? Uh, well, we're going to be in Exodus 27, but I'm going to start out in Matthew chapter 5. Okay. So if you'll go to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 14. So the hymns, what was the theme of the hymns today? What, what, was, what were we always talking about in the hymns? Light. light. We were talking about light. Send the light. This little light of mine. You know. So we were talking about light and how important light is. And light, especially if it comes from an oil lamp or if it comes from a candle, or really if it comes from any source of a flame, you can use that flame to kindle other uh, uh, sources to create more light without diminishing the original source of light. So it said that when Moses uh, got the 70 elders, that God put the anointing that was upon Moses upon them, and the rabbis likened that to a candle, that Moses was a candle. And he lit all 70 elders without diminishing his anointing or his light that he had. So when we share the light of God that we have, we're not diminishing ourselves. It's something that we don't need to be replenished or rekindled for. It's something that we have an endless, boundless supply of. And that's God's light. 
And so we're going to be talking about light today. So in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 14, very familiar passage from Yeshua. He says, you, you are the light of the world. It's interesting that the light of the world himself is calling us the light of the world. So he's bringing us in on his own mission. My mission is your mission. I am the light of the world. Now you are going to be the light of the world. Because I'm leaving this place. I'm blowing this popsicle stand. And I'm going to come back later. He says, you uh, are the salt of the earth. No. Yeah. You are. Yeah. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So it doesn't matter what source of light there is. If there's just a little light and there's a city on a hill, you're going to be able to see that light and know that there's somebody there. Unless lightning strikes or there's a forest fire, light usually means there's a human being around somewhere. You know, light just doesn't come from you know nowhere unless like it's a lightning strike. But you could usually put two and two together. During World War II, uh, there were blackouts. The sirens would, 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 would wail, and everybody had to turn their lights off and shut the blinds and go into their hidey holes, their basements, or their, you know, their shelters, their bomb shelters, because a light was basically like a target. I mean, if there was a light, that's where you'd drop the bomb. So people wanted to be safe from that, so they turned out all their lights. But nonetheless, it's still hard to hide a city, regardless if there's light or not. So he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put light, put light a lamp and put it under a basket. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. It's foolish. You don't light a candle for the purpose of hiding it underneath the cabinet, under the kitchen sink. Pretty sketchy. Pretty, yeah, pretty sketchy. I, I'd be wondering about somebody's mental sanity if they lit a candle and then say, oh, I'm just going to put this right here. Well, who is that? Is that for the gnomes or for the mice to see? You know, what are you doing that for? Or you don't put it under a bed. You don't put it under a basket. The purpose of lighting a lamp is so you can see, so you put it way up high. Usually in, you know, frontier homes, they have little oil lamps mounted around or little places where you can put candles. Or they had the little candlesticks that had the little finger holes so you can carry it and make your way to the bathroom. All these kind of things. So the purpose of light is for it to be seen. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I mean, cities are built to draw people to them. If cities didn't have people, there'd be no reason for the city to exist. It wouldn't be a city. It wouldn't be a city, exactly. I mean, you need it for commerce. You need it for, you know, so many things. So, yeah, even Plasterock. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a lampstand. So it could give light to the whole house. So our Torah portion is in Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27, and we're going to start with verse 20. Exodus chapter 7, verse 20. This is talking about the furnishings that are in the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was a place where God commanded the people, let them build a sanctuary for me. Let them build a tabernacle for me. They're going to fit the bill for this. They're going to volunteer all of their resources, the gold, silver, you know, wool, ramskins, you know, precious jewels, uh, fabrics to build this tabernacle. And so a lot of the gold that was collected made some of the furnishings like the Ark of the Covenant and the menorah, the lampstand. 
So we have in Exodus chapter 27, beginning with verse 20, also you are to command B'nai Israel, that is the children of Israel, that they are to bring to you pure olive oil, beaten for the light. So this menorah, it was fueled by olive oil. Not just any kind of olive oil, there's different grades of olive oil. The purer the olive oil, the clearer the oil is. The less, the, the, the less grade of oil, the more uh, sediments you're going to find in that oil from the olive. And it's going to be a little bit darker in, in color. And uh, yeah, and what did you say about the taste? Tastier. Yeah, yeah. So, but the reason that pure olive oil was necessary is because when there's sediments and the oil isn't pure, the light isn't consistent. That's what causes a lot of the flickering in the light. And, and it wanted to represent that God's light is a constant. That God's light, there's no shadow of turning, there's no flickering, there's no there's no wavering and no sketchiness, no flip-flopping back and forth, no oh, maybe, maybe not. It was a constant light. So the purer the light, the brighter and longer the light would burn and the purer. So it says, you are also to command B'nai Israel that they are to bring to you pure olive oil beaten for the light to cause a lamp to burn continually. So this lamp, once lit in the tabernacle, it was to be lit the entire time. And I'm even told that on the travels when they packed up everything and moved to another location and set up the tabernacle, that they had some way of keeping the light on the menorah lit so that it would never go out. And unfortunately, the light of the menorah went out during the time of Samuel, during Eli's reign as high priest, which I think was a commentary on the spiritual condition because they were so lackadaisical about worshiping the Lord, about serving the Lord. It wasn't a big deal if the light went out or not. Oh, well, our battle just lighted again. You know, so there, it was it was kind of a time of Israel's backsliding until Samuel became an adult and took over as high priest and he kind of put things back in order. But it says, verse 21, in the tent of meeting... Outside the curtain, which is before the testimony. So this is basically saying in, you had different sections of the tabernacle. You had the courtyard, you had the holy place, and then behind that you had the most holy place or the holy of holies. So in the holy place, you had the table of showbread, you had the altar of incense, and you had the menorah, the lampstand. And this is where the lampstand was. It says in the tent of meeting, outside the curtain before the testimony. So it's basically saying it's in the holy place because... Where the Ark of the Testimony was, that was the that was basically God's throne room on earth. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's throne chariot because it was a transportable Ark which had the covenant of God in it, the, the Ten Commandments. And uh, the, 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 the lid on the Ark was called the Mercy Seat. It was called a seat. And then you had the cherubim with the wings outspread to, to make like a canopy over the ark. And it said that God's presence would reside between the cherubim. That's where God sat on his throne on earth. In the tent of meeting, outside the curtain, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to set in order to burn from evening till morning before Adonai. So every morning they had to check to make sure that there was enough oil in the lamp. To make sure that the wicks were were uh, you know were, were sufficient. Now it's tradition that where they got the wicks from was from worn out priestly garments. When the garments had served their holy purpose and the Levites had worn them and they were threadbare, they would make wicks out of them. So nothing was wasted and everything was put to use. It it will be a statute forever throughout your generations on behalf of Bnei Israel. 
So that's kind of interesting. We know that there's no tabernacle right now. We know that there's no temple standing right now. So what does it mean this will be a statute forever throughout your generations on behalf of the children of Israel? That tells me there's going to be a third temple. That tells me that a third temple is going to be rebuilt and a menorah is going to be lit. Because God said, you know, he's like, well, just because there's no tabernacle or a temple doesn't mean I'm going to take away my commandment. Just because Yeshua, the light of the world, comes in doesn't negate the fact that I still require a menorah, a lampstand. Because the lampstand was symbolic of Yeshua, the light of the world. So it will be a statute forever throughout your generations on behalf of B'nai Israel. So how was oil made in order to produce fuel for the lamps? Answers the question in verse 20 of chapter 27. It says, Also you are to command the children of Israel that they are to bring to you pure olive oil. And how is it made? Beaten for the light. Isn't that interesting? That these olives had to be pounded. They had to be beaten in order to release their oil in order to be used for fuel to light a lamp. I think that has a lot to say to us today. We use a press now. Yeah, an, an olive press, yeah. Uh, so I also want to refer to Luke chapter 22. We'll make a very interesting connection here. Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 39. So... Just to recap, while you're finding your place here, Luke 22, starting with verse 39, the light that, that was kindled for the menorah was made from pure olive oil, and these olives were beaten, pounded, in order to extract the oil. There are some commentaries that say that they were only pressed to a degree that brought out the first few drops of oil because it was the purest. But you know, even if you did uh, beat them to where you could get all the oil possible, you could go through a filtration process to continue to make that oil pure. So we don't know for sure how that was, but we know it, was, it had to be a pure grade. So in Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 39, it says, And Yeshua came out and went as usual. Which meant this was his habit, this was his custom, this was his routine. To the Mount of Olives. That's interesting. That was one of Yeshua's favorite places. The light of the world, Yeshua the Messiah, one of his favorite places was the Mount of Olives, where they harvested and gathered olives in order to make fuel to light lamps, which he was the epitome of. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe you like the olives too, yeah. And Yeshua came out and went as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So I think he was trying to teach his disciples, we all need our special place to pray. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, I love to walk and talk with the Lord. So if I'm in the woods or on a hiking trail, that's where I love to spend time with the Lord. It's hard for me to sit and kneel and be in one place and pray. Other, yeah. Yeah, Wade just said he likes to pray and fish. Some people like to drive and pray. They use their car as their sanctuary. So I think he was trying to teach his disciples that, you know, that's just a minor, minor part there. It says, when they reached, when he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you will not enter into temptation. So this is the night that he was going to be betrayed. And he pulled back about a stone's throw from them. He got on his knees and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. 
And that's what we need to pray a lot too, because the Lord will ask us to do things that we don't want to do. Before I was pastor at the Plaster Rock United Baptist Church for the short time I was there, I told people all the time, I'm never going to be a pastor. I don't want to go through the drama. I don't want to do that. And the Lord opened the door for that. I said, yeah, that's what I want you to do. I'm the one who's going to have the last laugh. You don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do. Okay, Lord. And then after I left, the Lord said, start this congregation. So he wants me to be a pastor. Okay, Lord, I get it. He uses He uses those things. like the, He uses people that are reluctant to do the things that they say they don't want to do. And I think that's maybe a telltale sign that it's God telling them to do that. It's obedience. It's obedience, yeah. So he pulled back from them a stone's throw away, got on his knees, and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. That is a life of sacrifice, submission, and obedience. Is when we say, okay, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do, not what I want to do. Because we, we get these weird ideas that we get an idea in our head and say, oh, yeah, this is what I want to do for God. We get all excited and say, I'm going to start this ministry. I'm going to do that. Well, did you ask the Lord if that's what he wanted? <clears throat> I've done that before. And I fell flat on my face and said, Lord, why did I fail? This was for you. And he's like, I never asked you to do that. There's a difference in doing what you want to do for the Lord and what the Lord wants you to do for him. Ask not. What you, you, know, you can do for your country, but what your country can, you know, all right. That's Kennedy, right? Uh, but you know what I'm trying to say here. So going on, it says in verse 43. Huh? I say I have to be very careful with that. Yeah. Because a lot of times I'm stepping over top of him, but he reminds me very quickly who's in church. Exactly. Because it doesn't, it won't work. Yeah, you do something straight off the bat. You do something in your flesh, you're going to automatically make a fool of yourself and fall flat on your face. And verse forty-three. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and in his anguish he was praying fervently, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So Yeshua was under such agony and such stress. That there is a medical condition, and I'm not sure what the fancy name for it is, but when you're under such duress and stress that you can pray or you can think or you can be under such stress that the tiny little blood vessels near your sweat glands can burst and you can literally sweat blood. That's what they believe happened with Yeshua when he was praying because he was about to go to the cross. He didn't want to go. His human flesh didn't want to endure that torture, that pain and suffering. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. And it said that an angel came and strengthened him because who wouldn't need strength if they were about to be crucified? And it said he was praying fervently and his sweat was like drops of blood falling onto the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them asleep, exhausted from grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Now, another account of that is in Matthew chapter 26. Now, Yeshua had to be under tremendous pressure in order to sweat great drops of blood. An olive has to be pressed under a great amount of pressure to release the olive oil within that olive. Are you beginning to see the correlation here and the connection here? So in Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 36, Matthew 26, 36. Then Yeshua comes with them to the place called Gethsemane. 
Gethsemane. What a, what a weird name. Do you know what that name means? Translated. It means... Yeah. What, it, what, is, what does Gethsemane mean? It means olive press. Really? Yes. Gethsemane means olive press. Yeshua, the light of the world went to the Mount of Olives, which olives are harvested and produced in order to make pure olive oil to light lamps. And Yeshua is the epitome of that because he is the light of the world. So where is he praying? Where he is under such stress that he prays and, and he sweats blood? Gethsemane, the olive press. There was an olive press right on the Mount of Olives. So symbolic. So I think it's very interesting that Gethsemane means olive press. Then Yeshua comes with him to the place called Gethsemane, the olive press. And he tells his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took along with him Peter and Zebedee's two sons and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he tells them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell down and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Lord, if there's any other other way, a plan B. Verse 40, uh, verse 40. Then he comes to his disciples and finds them sleeping and tells Peter, So couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? Keeping, keep watching and praying so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, let your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for, his, for their eyes were heavy. So they were, Luke said that they were exhausted because of grief, because they knew it was going to happen. But I think on top of that, they were kind of in a food coma because they just had Passover. So he left them. And a prayed a third time, saying the same words once more, and then comes to the disciples and says to them, Still sleeping? Take your rest. Look, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. Look, my betrayer is near. Yeshua became the light of the world. He was beaten, then erected on high from a cross for all to see. Stand. Yeah, he was the lampstand. Yeshua, uh, the menorah represents Yeshua in Exodus 27. It gives I love the lamp a whole new one. Yeah, it gives the lampstand, the, the menorah, a whole new meaning, a whole new outlook. But it's kind of reaches its fulfillment in Matthew uh, where he's erected upon that cross. Now, it's interesting because the word cross is actually a stake. It's actually, you know, a pole. So Yeshua carried the cross beam up the hill because the, the, the stake was already there. And they just they just laid him, put the cross beam down and laid him on it. And that's how it became a cross. But still, you look at the cross and you look at his shape hanging on the cross. It reminds you of a lampstand. It reminds you of a menorah. Now, it's interesting that he was erected for all men to see, just like somebody erects a lamp and puts a lamp up high so that everybody can see. But it's interesting that Christians, early Christians, followed in Yeshua's footsteps because under the persecution of Nero, to mock Yeshua's crucifixion, what he would do is he would take Christians and impale them alive on a stake, pour tar over them, and set them aflame, 
and they were burned alive, and they are the ones who lit the light for his soirees, his, his parties, his dinner parties. That's how sick and twisted this Nero was. And he was making fun of these Christians. Oh, so you're the light of the world. Well, let's make you the light of the world, make you the light of my party. And that's how many Christians died under the hand of Nero, like a torch. They, they, they literally became the light of the world, and they suffered for the name of Yeshua. So in order for us to be lights, we first must be pressed and beaten. That's not a very good popular message, Pastor. That's not a message I want to hear, Rabbi. I want to feel good. I want to walk away being inspired. Our fallen nature wants to run from and shun suffering. But it's suffering that draws us closer to God. It's suffering that makes us stronger. Just like the saying with weightlifters, no pain, no gain. You get muscle by, by enduring the pain of working out. There's a lot of people who go through the valley of the shadow of death with leukemia or cancer or some other health or medical situation or some tragedy that happens in their life. And you ask these people who walked with it, walked through it with God, say, would you change or would you wish anything different? No. If it wasn't for this, yes, it was hard. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, many days I wanted to give up. Yes, many days I asked God why. But it was because of this suffering that made me who I am today. It drew me closer to God. It made me stronger. It revealed things in me I needed to change. It revealed things about God that I never knew before. I wouldn't change anything. So there's something positive to be said about suffering. And it's our flesh that wants to run from the suffering. Even Yeshua said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So we've got to overcome our flesh, our fallen nature, and say, yes, Lord, I'll be willing to suffer. If that's what you want, if that's what it takes... So in order for us to be lights, we first must be pressed and beaten and pounded. I want to read to you a passage by Yeshua's half-brother, Jesus' half-brother, James. Yaakov, Jacob is his Hebrew name. So in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren. Okay, what do you want us to be joyful about, James? Oh, when you encounter various trials. Huh? What are you smoking, James? How can I get joy out of a trial? You're not making any sense here. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect or complete work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Spiritually, you want to be the total package? Well, guess what? You're going to have to suffer a little bit. But that's okay. Suffering doesn't last forever. Maybe. Maybe. But it usually it's it, you go through it. You come to it in order to go through it. There's something on the other side. And we just dread going through it because we've never gone through it before or we've heard other people and it's not fun. But once we get on the other side of it, it's worth it all. It's so worth it. And here I'm preaching to you and I'm preaching to myself because when I come to my trials and situations, it's not like I say, Woohoo! Yippee! Thank you, Lord, for this suffering. Thank you, Lord, for these trials and tribulations. I'm ready to walk through it. Hallelujah. Do, 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 do. No, I'm like, uh, Lord. This sucks. Yeah, I'm like, Lord, this really sucks. Lord, are you sure there's no other way? You, you, this is what you want me to do? Okay. But when I'm going through it, the Lord's grace and his spirit comes. And it's not that I enjoy the suffering, but I endure it and I come out the other side and I'm so much better for it. So in uh, 
Rob Shaul, the Apostle Paul's letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses starting with verse 8. The Apostle Paul, he knew a thing or two about suffering. But it was worth it all. He endured it. He was willing to endure it because he knew it was worth it. Where are you? I'm sorry. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. He says, we are hard-pressed. That's an interesting choice of words because we're talking about olives. We're talking about how olives have to be pressed in order to give oil, to, to be a light. And we're wanting to be lights. There's a theme. Yeah, so, so if we want to be the light of the world, we've got to be pressed a little bit in order to be lights. So it says, Paul says, we are hard-pressed in every way, yet not crushed. Perplexed, yet not in despair. Persecuted, yet not forsaken. Struck down, yet not destroyed. Boy, struck down and not destroyed. It makes me think of those, those wrestling matches I used to watch as a kid. And you thought, old, you thought that Andre the Giant had old Hulk, Hulk Hogan? He had him in that, in that headlock, and that referee was taking his arm. Flop. Oh, no, Hulk. Come on, Hulk Hogan. Get up, get up. He'd bring his arm up a second time, and it fell. You're like, oh, no. Andre the Giant's going to beat him. All of a sudden, he raises it up a third time, and all of a sudden, oh, no. He starts shaking that finger, and you're like, yes, the Hulkster's there. Then he, he rises up. You know, so it's like, yeah, struck down but not destroyed. Hulk Hogan was struck down but not destroyed. Kind of the same thing in MMA. You know, when a guy gets knocked down, he'll get right back up. You know, struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Yeshua. So that the life of Yeshua may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. For we who live are always being handed over to death for Yeshua's sake. So that the life of Yeshua may be revealed in our mortal body. So death at work is in us. But life is at work in you but we have the same spirit of faith according to that which is written i believed and therefore i spoke so we also believe and therefore we also speak knowing that the one who raised the lord yeshua will raise us also with yeshua and bring us with you into uh, into his presence for all things are for your sake so that the grace that is spreading through uh spreading through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Now Yeshua was beaten and crushed, erected on a cross to be the light of the world. Guess what? He didn't jump down from the cross. He could have. Could have called the angels. But he didn't. He died. Yeah, he, Yeshua knew his place. He knew what he was there for. He was the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. And to be the Lamb of God, he had to die. He was put in a tomb. And just like old Hulk Hogan, day one went by, and the disciples were like, oh no, I can't believe this is happening. Day two goes by, oh no, he's in the ground, he's beginning to decay and rot. Day three comes by, oh, oh, there's that shaking, and the tomb opens, and Yeshua walks right out. So we too will be beaten and then lifted up upon a cross, so to speak. So I'm just going to turn there. This is just going to be one verse, so you don't have to turn there unless you want to. But in Matthew chapter 16, you know that Daryl Evans song? I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my shame. 
I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. He, go, he takes that verse that we read in Corinthians. I am pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. I am blessed beyond the curse because his promise will endure and his joy is going to be my strength. Oh, sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes with the morning. I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my shame. And I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. Because I say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. You know what he's saying yes to? He's saying yes to suffering. He's saying yes to persecution. He's saying yes to trials. Because he knows he's going to get through it and he's going to be better for it. Amen. So in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, it reads, Then Yeshua said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So just as Yeshua was erected on a cross and died, we must take our cross Crucify ourselves on that cross, erect ourselves on that cross, and die to ourselves. Because in Galatians 2.20, it says, For I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live, I live for him. So we must die to ourselves. And this last time I was at, a, at the camp, I take a yearly excursion to the camp just to get alone with the Lord. And I had this weird experience where every time I thought of myself... Or imagine myself. I didn't see myself as I am now, but I seen myself as I was as a, 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 a teenager, as a college student. I had feathered hair. I didn't have a beard or anything. And that's the way I always imagine myself. And I'm like, Lord, why is that? Why don't I ever see myself as I am now, bald and with a beard? He says, because you failed to crucify that version of Chris. <clears throat> that version of Chris is alive and well, and he served his purpose, but he needs to die. And I was like, whoa. So in that cabin, I had to imagine that version of Chris, even though he served me well as a teenager. I kind of idolized him in the end because that version of Chris was a very bold Chris, a very, a very outright Chris in, in a, a, a high school and college. Very radical, very in your face, very evangelistic. But then I kind of become prideful of that Chris because that Chris became my identity. Christ is supposed to be my identity, not Chris. So I had to take that version of myself and say, Lord, I surrender this, Chris, and I nail this version of Chris to the cross. And I actually imagined in my mind, me as I am now, taking that old version of myself and actually whipping him, beating him, marching him up a hill with a, with a, with a pole, and putting him on the cross and literally nailing that version of myself to the cross. And after that, I've never seen myself that way anymore. I see myself as I am now. Because we can idolize ourselves. We need to crucify ourselves. Yeah? Yeah, praise the Lord. So Exodus 20, uh, 27-20. Uh, let me read that again and then just ask a little question here. You are to command B'nai Israel, the children of Israel. You know what? I preached this whole sermon and didn't record it. All right. All right, it's on there. Can you send me the audio of it? Absolutely. Okay. As soon as I figure out how. <laughs> also, you are to command B'nai Israel that they are to bring to you pure olive oil beaten for the light, to cause a lamp to burn continually. 
What did this eternal flame give light for? Answer, it illuminated the furnishings which revealed the word of the Lord. Because all the furnishings from the table of showbread to the golden altar of incense, from the dimensions and the materials it was made from, all typified in some way, shape, or form Yeshua the Messiah. I'm going to read to you uh, also from Matthew. You guys still hanging with me? Yes, Nobody's snoring out there, are they? Okay. Oh, yeah. Not yet. Okay, hang in there. It's a little bit longer. Matthew chapter uh, 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp or put it under a, or put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a lampstand so it gives light to all in the house. And then I want to finish with the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, or yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting with verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. You can't shine properly, consistently. Purely and brightly for the Lord without being pressed in some way, shape, or form. Without a little bit of suffering. And we worry about that suffering because it makes our flesh uncomfortable. But what did the Lord tell Paul? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is made perfect in weakness. God gets the glory through our weakness. Because when we're weak, ah, oh, he can't do that. When we're weak, oh, that's impossible for him. He's a nobody. And when it happens, you're like, oh, wow. Who gets the glory from that? God! My grace is sufficient for you, for, for power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. That relates back to what James says. Consider it all joy when you face various trials. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Messiah may dwell in me. For Messiah's sake, then, I will delight in my weakness, in insults, in distress, in persecutions, in calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We have to retrain our brain. We have to reprogram ourselves. Because now when we suffer and we go through trials and tribulations, oh, poor me. Oh, what's going to happen to me? Oh, me. Me, 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 me. We start worshiping the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Right? But this is all for the glory of Yeshua. All for the glory of God. Because again, he says in verse 10, 12, 10, let me find it again. For Messiah's sake, then, we delight in our weakness. We need to, it's called reframing. We need to look at our situations and reframe them. When we see trial, trouble, tribulation, loss, sickness, disease, what have you, we need to reframe that instead of saying, oh, trouble's coming. We need to say, oh, the glory of God is coming. Oh, God is going to do something great in and through this. This is a chance for God to shine. This is, for, this is time for me to take a back seat and time for God to take a front seat and center stage. For Messiah's sake, then, I will delight, Paul says, I will delight my weakness. And in insults, and in distress, and in persecutions, and in calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So that's the way.
that we, like Yeshua, can be the light of the world. So if you want your light to shine brightly, get ready to suffer a little bit. But no pain, no gain. It's all good. As the scripture says, it comes to pass. It will come, you go through it, then it will pass, and it will be all worth it one day. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord, these are hard lessons to learn. These are hard teachings to swallow because our flesh doesn't enjoy or like suffering in any way, shape, or form. We want to, to any way possible to, to get away from it or to get around it if there's some other way. But, Lord, we know that sometimes we, we have to go through it, but we don't realize the benefit of going through it because we've never been through it before. So, Lord, teach us and train us to surrender, to submit to your will, even if that involves persecution and suffering, knowing that in the end we'll be better for it and you will get the glory and people will be drawn to you. Because in our pressing, in our distress, in our pounding, the pure oil comes out so that we burn more consistently and burn more brightly for you. And that's what we are to be, is lights to the world. We are to imitate our Messiah and be lights to the world. And some of our brothers and sisters, was that literally when Nero impaled them and poured tar on them and set them aflame alive, they literally became your light, Lord. We may never have to go through anything like that, but if we did, we know that your word says that your grace is sufficient and you will see us through it and you will get the greater glory. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bashem Yeshua Moshinu. Amen. In the name of Yeshua our Messiah. Amen. That was a pretty heavy duty sermon, I know. But maybe this psalm will soften the blow of that hard hitting sermon. Let's take our hymn books and turn to 573. 573. Farther along. 573. Good song when trials and tribulations hit. It's a good song to remember during that. Tempted and tried, we're off made to wander. Why should it be thus all the day long? While there are others living about us, never molested, though in the wrong. Farther Farther along, we'll know 
understand why. Cheer up, my brother, live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. Faithful till death, said our loving master. A few more days to labor and wait. Toils of the road will then seem as nothing. As we sweep through the beautiful gates, farther along we'll know all about it. Farther along we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother, live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. When we see Jesus coming in glory, when he comes from his home in the sky, then shall we meet him in that bright mansion. We'll understand it all by and by. Farther along we'll know all about it. Farther along we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother, live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. Let's soften the blow of that message a little bit. Yeah, I think it does. All right. We don't like to hear suffering, but suffering is necessary. All right, guys, thanks so much for coming. Love you guys. Shabbat shalom, Shabbat tov. Happy Sabbath, and have a great week.